All right, before we get into parenting, I want to say a word about fashion. And this is primarily for Daniel and Max. And I don't see either. There's Max. I don't know where Daniel is at this point. But if you could pass this on to him, let's talk about the tie, first of all. Okay. It's over 50 years old. I bought it last Saturday in Decatur, Alabama for $1.98. It is out of style. It is wide. It is polyester. Now, here's the strategy, and I want to perhaps maybe start a trend, and that is go to thrift stores, look for these, and then when you tie them, tie them purposely short so that the width would be accentuated. I... I, did not tie it so that it would go the whole way down for this reason. I have a medical condition known as an enlarged stomach. And as such, it's tough for the tie to reach all the way down. When the tie comes all the way down, then it sort of is just like hanging out here. So go short, go short, go wide, go old, go cheap, go polyester. Okay. Uh, can somebody get that message to, to Daniel? All right. Thank you very much, Harry, for the opportunity to speak on this subject. It is always a very intimidating subject for me to speak on. And the reason that that is true is because parenting is such a difficult thing to do. Um, I just want to say that as I have observed what you and Janice are doing, I would much rather have your future than my past when it comes to parenting. And I believe that you're doing a fabulous job and I am very, very blessed and encouraged by what I see in uh, your life, uh, you setting an example for the church. And so I give God praise. Um, this is session number one. There are to be three of them. I don't know how far I'm going to get in session number one. I'm going to try to make eight points in session one, but looking at the clock on the wall, I might not get there. Mark Twain once said, when I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much the old man had learned in seven years. Now, what does Mark Twain mean by that? Well, it is more than just a humorous quote. It is a profound truth, and the profound truth is this, and that is that wise parents do not perform in order to gain the applause of their immature, foolish children. Let me say that again. Wise parents do not perform in order to gain the applause of their immature, foolish children. They do what they do because they know it to be true, they know it to be right, they know it to be best, and they work under the assumption that their children will eventually come to the same conclusion. Solomon put it this way in Proverbs 22.6, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old he will not depart from it. But what Mr. Solomon and Mr. Clemens assume is that fathers and mothers know what is good and right and wise and best. They know the way to go. Well, I want to submit to you this morning that we can make no such assumption in 21st century America. So with that in mind, what I would like to do is I would like to give you eight actions, actions to consider as you seek to raise your children in the way that they should go. 
But before I get to even one of those actions, I want to give you a very long introduction that is filled with many disclaimers. This is the fine print. This is not an exhaustive list. In this particular session, there's going to be nothing about teaching your children uh, about health or sex or sports or education or money or household skills or people skills. I'm not going to say anything about how your marriage is going to impact them. Those are all useful lessons. We might get to them at some point today, uh, but it is not on our list for this morning. This list that I have for you this morning is a very limited list. It is a personal list, and it is a subjective list. I chose these eight topics by asking myself, what were some of the philosophical building blocks that we used when we raised our children? And that's what you're going to hear today. Again, not only is it not an exhaustive list, but I'm pretty confident that It's not even the best list. It is simply my list. Now, that's not to say that I'm preaching myself. I'm not preaching myself. I'm preaching the Word of God. It is not to say that we arrive at truth through experience. Uh, We don't. We arrive at truth through the Word of God. John chapter 17, verse 17. Sanctify them by thy word. Thy word is truth. But it is to say that I'm not going to be speaking to you today in theory or with some sort of idealistic speculation. Uh, This is not a formula that I drew up in a laboratory. These are subjects uh, to which I can address with actual experience. Uh, However, in saying that, I don't wish to imply that I, when parenting my children, mastered these things or even that I did them well. In fact, I would even go so far as to say that many of the things that I learned, I learned from defeat and sin and failure. Our second session today is going to be a list of things that I did poorly as a parent, things which if I had a do-over, I would change. And so even in this session, I'm going to tell you what I've learned through the School of Hard Knocks. I have a PhD from the School of Hard Knocks, and As I do this, um, I want to give you something that will probably humble you and something that will encourage you. First of all, I want to say something to humble you. I have met countless parents uh, who were much better parents than I am uh, in every way. As far as I could see, at least from every outward observation, they did everything right. They did everything correctly. They did everything in line with the scriptures. And at the end of the day, their children ended up being weird, ungodly, dishonest failures. On the other hand, I want to say something to encourage you, and that is that, and and it baffles me, I do not have an answer for it, But I have seen some really horrible parents who did just about everything wrong that you could imagine. And doggone it, at the end of the day, their children turned out to be productive and polite and responsible and godly, Christ-loving citizens. Uh, The reason that I say that is that I want to tell you up front today, everything. And when I say everything, I mean everything without exception. I mean everything. Everything is contingent upon the grace of God, 100% of it. 
So please don't think that I'm presenting some sort of a formula for success for your family that comes with a money-back guarantee. It doesn't. Now, that doesn't mean that we are not responsible for our actions. It doesn't mean that what you do will not have an impact upon your children. You are responsible for your actions, and what you do will have an impact upon your children. But what it is to say is that we are 100% dependent upon the mercy of God. You can lead a horse to water. You cannot make that horse drink. You can tell your children everything that they should do. You can model for your children everything that they should do. But unless God, the Holy Spirit, changes their wanter and puts within them a desire to love Christ, they're simply not going to love Christ. So, for those of you who at this time are patting yourself on the back because you raise such wonderful children or you are in the process of raising such wonderful children and people often walk up to you and commend you and tell you what a great job you are doing, I would just say, please be careful, please beware, please try to avoid the sin and the trap of pride because pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Uh, 1618 of Proverbs. Uh, By that I mean is our children have very creative ways in their behavior as the years go by of humbling us. For those of you who are discouraged right now, and you're here today because you're looking for some kind of help because you feel as though you have done or are in the process of doing a bad job, I just want to say At the mercy of God, there is mercy in God. And the grace of God can restore the years that the locusts have eaten. Job, I'm sorry, Joel chapter 2 verse 25. And it's not ultimately up to you. You are just called upon to be faithful. So, once again, these are personal applications. Uh, This is how the Moore family did it. Please understand that your family is your family. And that is not to say that everything that you do is right, but it is to say that your family is unique. So please do not try to be another family. I think one of the things that I did, uh, which was so destructive in the raising of my children, is that from time to time, I would find another family that was doing something And what I would try to do is I would try to match it apples to apples. I would say, since they're doing that, we need to do this. And I would try to implement all of their family practices into our home. It does not work. Your children will resent it. You are your family. Be your family. Don't be another family. You're not the Moors. You're not the Fujiwaras. You're not the Mannings. You're not the Kennedys. You're not the Manson family. You are your family. And so you have to listen to the points that I am about to give, and you need to have a discerning ear, and you need to try to, dis- to, to apply them as they would relate to your situation. If they relate to where you are at this time, that's great. But I just want to say, as I give you these points, I do not think that you should try to implement all of them. In fact, I think, here's here's my opinion, if today you take one of these points and you start to apply it, I think that my time here will have been a wonderfully grand and glorious success. Don't look at all eight and say, this is what we've got to do. I think you ought to try to take one of them and put it into practice. 
As you listen to the points, uh, you're going to note that they are uh, very long and convoluted. Uh, there are eight of them, and they follow no particular order except for the last one is the most important one. But each one of them starts with the word use, U-S-E. Uh, the reason that I did this is because of James one twenty two which says that we are to be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving our own selves. And by that I mean, do not be deceived into thinking that just because you learned something about being a parent, that you are a better parent, it is only going to better your parenting if you put it into practice. So each of the points are designed for application. And as I said, you're also going to notice that the sentences of each of the points are long, they are convoluted, and they are probably grammatically incorrect. But they are thorough enough and they are descriptive enough that if you just meditate upon the words of the point, you don't even really need to listen to me preach. The point itself will be the point and you will get the point. Here they are. Number one. Number one. Use expressive words with obnoxious frequency in order to communicate love. Use expressive words with obnoxious frequency in order to communicate love. In other words, talk with your children all the time, and as you do, let there be no doubt whatsoever in their minds that you absolutely adore them. We're told in 1 Thessalonians 5.11 that we are to encourage one another and we are to build one another up. So let's use God, our Heavenly Father, as our example of the best father that there is, the best parent that there is. In his relationship with his only begotten son, Jesus, on multiple occasions, he verbally, publicly, unashamedly spoke of his love for his son. At the baptism of Christ, the voice of God thundered from heaven and said what? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Concentrate on that word, beloved. I love him. Hear him. At the transfiguration, he said to Peter, James, and John, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear, hear him. And in his relationship with us, his adopted children, he communicates with words. The Bible is 1,189 chapters in length, and in it, he goes to great lengths repeatedly to tell us that he loves us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. And God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God is a God of love. God is love and God loves us. And God, here we go, tells us that he loves us. I can't tell you the number of people who have said to me one of the following things. They might say something like this. I know that my father loved me, but I never heard him say it. Uh, he showed me that he loved me because he went to work and he provided well. And he showed me that he loved me because we were always safe and we were well protected. 
He showed me that he loved me in that he was affectionate with me and would hug me and from time to time give me a kiss on the forehead, but I never heard my father say it. Or they'll say something like this, my life has been a quest in order to please my mother or to please my father. Even though my mother or father might be dead, I am still chasing after them. I am still trying to please them. I'm still trying to gain their favor or gain their acceptance. Many years ago, I was preaching on a Sunday morning. Uh, I believe my topic on that particular Sunday morning was um, God the Father expressing his love toward Jesus Christ, his son, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so as to illustrate that, my son Parker, who was about eight years old, was sitting in the front row of the church, and I called him up to the platform. Little boy stood him right in front of me, looked at him in the eye, and I said to him, Parker, I love you. I adore you. I am so happy that you are my son. I want you to know that I am pleased with you and that I love you. And I want everybody who's here today to know I love my son. And then I had him sit down. I preached the rest of the sermon. It was a minor point. It took only a few minutes of the sermon. And as I was standing that day at the door, shaking hands with people. There was a woman who exited. She was a longtime member of the church. She was a widow. Uh, she was a very unemotional woman. And as she was leaving, tears were rolling down her cheeks. And she said to me, Pastor, when you brought that boy up there on that stage, it broke my heart because my mother and my father both lived and died. And never once did either one of them ever once tell me that they loved me. Which kind of blows my mind, but I think it is more common than you might think. And people will say, well, I love my kids and my kids know that I love them, but I'm sort of old school or that's not part of our cultural tradition or I'm more reserved or I'm not as expressive. In which case I would say old school is bad school and old school is hurtful school. Being quiet or reserved is both sinful and destructive when it comes to communicating love to our children. I will hear people say, I never knew if I did enough to please my mother or to please my father. I never knew if I really satisfied them. Well, let me tell you, you can remove all doubt if you will simply say the words. If your children feel that way, you can put it to a forever end by using expressive words with obnoxious frequency in order to communicate love. Let me tell you uh, about my father. My father never had a father. Um, my father was born in 1926 in a little town in western Pennsylvania. Um, when my dad was six months old, his father left him. Uh, I don't know if you know much about American history or culture in the United States of America in the 1920s, but back in those days, nobody ever got a divorce. Nobody even separated. So my dad quite literally was the only little boy in his community who did not have a father. He never had a father. He didn't know what it was like to be a father, and yet he became a great father. One of the things that he would do is that he would tell all of his children every day, multiple times a day, that he loved us. 
Every night before I would go to bed, he would come into my bedroom and he would lean over and he would kiss me on the forehead and he would say, God bless this boy from the top of his head to the sole of his feet and he would tell me that he loved me. And it wouldn't just be like this one-time talk that he would have. Uh, Well, there's my grandchildren there. Come here, Mabel. Come here. Come here. Come here. Quickly. Come here. Come here. Give me a hug. Give me a hug. Okay. Okay. Mabel, listen. I love you. And I want you to know that I love you. And I want all of these people to know that I love you. Okay? Okay. All right. Kiss right there. All right. All right. Go ahead. Okay. Uh staged. Uh, (laughs) We practiced all last night. Uh, uh, We would be playing uh, on the floor. My father would be sitting in a chair and he would say, you come over here. You come over to me here right now. And I would walk over in front of him and he would grab me by the shoulders and he'd say, now you look me in the eye. Look me in the eye right now. I want you to know that I love you. I want you to know that I adore you, and I am so glad that you are my son. And he would do this all the time. And when you're a little boy, it really breeds a sense of security, and it really makes you feel uh, like, okay, there really is nothing to worry about. Uh, When you get into middle school... And in high school, it becomes embarrassing uh, when my father, when I would be going places, uh, would come over to me and he would kiss me on the cheek and he would tell me that he loved me in front of my friends. It's like, please, Dad, do we have to do this now? But he always communicated that, always communicated that. And let me just say this about it. And the reason I say obnoxious frequency, this is not the one-time talk. Um, theoretically, it might be argued that there are aspects of the sex talk that might be the one-time talk. It's like, oh, gee, here we go. All right, sit down and, you know, how we got that over with. Now you know, now you know where you came from. Uh, it's like, and, and we don't have to talk about this anymore, right? You got this. Well, I'm, I'm being facetious. We do need to talk more about that. But the love talk is not one where you sit down with your kids and say, you know, something mother and I have been meaning to tell you. And, uh, you know, it's just, uh, you know. We think a lot of you, you know, we love you. Okay, all right, you know, and like, okay, wow, I got it out once. My dad told me once that he loved me. No, this needs to be every day, many times a day. Say it, say it to your kids, whether they are five years old or whether they are 50 years old, communicate love. Number two, number two, use Creative actions, use creative actions with enthusiastic spontaneity in order to create memories. And let me tell you something, memories are important. As you are living your life right now and you think back on what it was like in your home, you have memories. And those memories are valuable. Use creative actions with enthusiastic spontaneity in order to create memories. I almost omitted this point because it doesn't seem that spiritual. But if you want to use shorthand for this point, point number two, have fun. Have fun. Doesn't mean that you shrink from your responsibilities, but it does mean have fun. 
It is a call for delight and joy and laughter and craziness and fun in the context of the family. It is scriptural because in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 4, it says there's a time to laugh and a time to dance. I want to argue today that the home and the family is the place where the laughter and the dancing should most occur. Let's move from the spiritual, the eternal, to the now and the temporal. Think of it, I'm going to use this argument. If heaven is our real home, and heaven is our real home, we are just sojourners, we are just passing through, this world is not my home. If heaven is our real home, and heaven is a place of unspeakable joy, should we not model for our children in the here and now that home is a place that is to be filled with joy. The family and the home are pictures of the gospel and heaven. What do we call heaven? We call it our heavenly home. What is heaven? Heaven is a place where there is unspeakable delight. Does it make any sense logically whatsoever that our homes in the here and now would be a place that are only filled with responsibility? They are drab. They are just kind of got to do what I got to do. It's just kind of a place where I sleep so that I'm not cold. I kind of have to be here because I can't be anywhere else. It's just kind of blah. It's just kind of home. Yet I'm going to heaven a place where there will be endless delight, well, does it not make sense then that our earthly home should look like or model our heavenly home? You see, when the emphasis on raising godly kids is simply that they won't get into trouble, I think that the, I think that the emphasis is wrong. I think that when a home has a defensive posture, do you know what I mean when I say a defensive posture? A defensive posture is we're going to do everything that we can to prevent evil from happening. We're going to do everything we can to make sure that safety occurs. We're going to do everything we can to protect. And the home sort of becomes like a castle where we are trying to protect ourselves from the evils of the world or at least the bad influences of the world. That is good in a sense, but when the posture is only that of defense, where's the delight? Where's the joy? I think that our home should be a place of great joy, and that should be our strategy. And the strategy begins with you and not with the kids. And it is to communicate to them, I am excited about this family. This is the place to be. And I will argue that the one way that the home becomes a place of delight and joy is by forming family traditions. Family traditions, which are fun. So here's one that won't cost you a nickel. And we've done this for a couple of decades with our family. And that is we sit around after the day is over and we go around and we ask this question, what were the three best things about today? What were the three best things about today? Now, it's good in that it gets them to think. It's good in that it gets them to talk. And it's good in that it lets you know what they like and what they don't like. And it causes them to be thankful and to reflect upon the day. So, a simple thing. Everybody in the family says, what are we going to do 
that or what were the three best things about the day. There are other annual family traditions that we have. So, for example, on the night before baseball's opening day, every year we as a family, for the past 30 years, we will all watch Field of Dreams. Everybody knows Field of Dreams, right? Who you have, you, who, who has not seen Field of Dreams? You've not seen Field of Dreams. Okay. Just right up front. You are bad parents. You're bad parents. Okay. You, 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 for, you know what? Instead of the third session today, we're just going to watch Field of Dreams. It's a baseball movie. It has James Earl Jones in it. He gives a great soliloquy. People will come, Ray. People will most definitely come. They'll come to Iowa. It's a great movie. Wherever our family happens to be, and I have kids in Georgia and in Kentucky and in North Carolina, wherever anybody is the night before opening day, we watch that movie. Not far from here in Central Park, every year on the 4th of July, we have an annual family tradition where we will go to Old Navy and we will buy matching, matching Old Navy flag t-shirts and we will take family pictures. And as a part of those family pictures, every year we will like line up for, you know, Ed, Anna, Parker, Charlie, Savannah, Madison, family picture, whoever happens to be in town. The final picture every year is always the same picture. And it is me finding a complete stranger in the park, asking him to assist us with a picture when he walks over, me pulling off my shirt, giving it to him, making him get in the family picture as if he is me, and having him give my wife a kiss on the cheek with the rest of the family there as though he is me. Family traditions. Maybe you want to do different family traditions. I don't know. But it's what, but it's what we do. Last week, I gave this same sermon in a church in Alabama. And I told the people there uh, about this. And I said, one of the things that I adore most about my time with my family is that we used to have restaurant night at our church, at, at our home. And here's what restaurant night would look like. Parker, probably about 12 or 13 years old at the time, he would cook chicken cutlets. And Charlie, he would be the waiter. And Savannah would decorate the table. And Madison would be the entertainment or whatever. It was just, and we would all dress up, suits and ties and beautiful dresses, candles, lights low, don't answer the phone, don't answer the door. And we would sit as if it were a restaurant. And Anna and I would, I, I want to cry when I think about it. We'd walk in and, and the maitre d' would show us to the table and we would sit down and we would have this beautiful just time together where, where we pretended we were at a restaurant. I gave this same talk last Sunday morning at a church in Decatur, Alabama. On Tuesday night, I got a text from uh, the pastor of the church and there was his wife and his two daughters at a table, candlelit, girls in beautiful dresses and what looked like a, a nice arrangement on the table. And I thought, all right, somebody is listening. But again, your family is your family. Your family is not my family. Another thing that we would do is that at Christmas time, 
we would always jump in the van and, and, and it would be spontaneous. It wouldn't be planned. We'd just be sitting around one dark December evening and say, let's go do it right now. Everybody get your coats on. And we would go around to the widows of the church and we would, we would sing Christmas carols on their front, uh, on their front porch. And I think you get the idea. I don't have to keep giving illustrations. Um, but I want to say this about the memories. There's going to come a time when your kids are going to leave home. They need to look back upon your home as a place which was joyful and it was fun. And let me just tell you about some of these things. You are going to swing and miss. You are going to suggest things which are excessively lame. You are going to waste money. You are going to embarrass your kids and there are going to be times when you're going to walk away from an activity and say, wow, I'm glad we came out of that alive. That was, that really wasn't good. And, 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 and the other thing I'll say to you is remember what Jesus said in, in Matthew chapter 11. He says, to what will I liken this generation? You know, you're, you're never satisfied. We played the flute for you and you wouldn't dance. Uh, we played a dirge for you and you wouldn't mourn. He said, you're like children in the marketplace and you, you can never be satisfied. And his point was, you know, John came neither eating nor drinking. You say he has a demon. I come and I'm partying with, with, with Matthew and Zacchaeus and you say that, that I'm a, 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 a drunkard and, and a glutton. Like you're never satisfied. But he said, you're like children in that you're never satisfied. Well, guess what? Children are never satisfied. And so you're going to, in your attempts to have family traditions and to have fun, at times you're going to perhaps embarrass them. And there are going to be times, especially when they hit puberty, when they're just like not want to go along with the family things. But you keep pressing, you keep trying, and you keep uh, attempting to have fun in the house. And as you do, you are going to create memories. And you're going to say, this is a big deal to me. And when that time is there, when it comes, when, as it says, every blind squirrel finds an acorn, when you get an activity which has been a success, you listen to me, Hector, when you get it, you mark it and you make it memorable so that the kid will never forget it as a beautiful gift that God has given you by having fun in the house. So back in 2005, um, on one late summer evening, I decided to take my sons to a New York Met game. Uh, the Mets were in a pennant race that year, which means they were about 12 games out. Uh, and late in the game, they brought up a backup catcher by the name of Castro. And the Mets were losing to the Phillies. And Castro hits a three-run homer. And lo and behold, the worst organization in all of professional sports, the Mets win the game that night. And there I am. The weather is nice. My team has won. I am with my two sons. I love them. They love me. We are celebrating. And to celebrate, we went to Spaghetti Park to the Lemon Ice King to get a lemon ice before we went home. And I had a moment of clarity. Not 
uh, an AA moment of clarity, but a moment of clarity in that I thought to myself, this is really good. Our team won. I am with my sons. Don't know what more I want in life. And as I'm standing at the counter there, looking at the different flavors of the lemon ice king and the big sign that says, we do not mix, a man walks up beside me and he's getting ready to order his lemon ice. And knowing that my sons were there, I turned to him and I said, not tonight, pal. No, sir. Your money's no good here tonight. I'm paying. And the reason I'm paying is because we're celebrating. And the reason we're celebrating is because our team won and I'm with my sons tonight. So order anything you want, pal. It's on me. And so he orders this, you know, dollar seventy-five, you know, lemon ice. And it's it's on me, pal. Why was I doing that? I was doing that not for that man. And certainly not for myself, but I was doing it to mark the moment for my sons. I want to tell you, the best times you will ever have in life are unplanned, they are spontaneous, they are simple, and quite often they are free. I'm going to tell you that the best times that you will have in life sometimes are a wrestling, a family wrestling match on the bed, and sometimes the worst times that you will ever have as a family are times when you spend a lot of money to go to a very expensive place and it just doesn't turn out the way that you want it to be. You can get a lot of mileage out of simply trying to have fun. And I'll say this, the death knell of the family is when every member of the family is permitted to go off into their own corner of the house. Uh, I know that this point doesn't seem terribly spiritual, but having the family together and just talking or wrestling or being silly is going to create great memories. That is point number two. Number three, use fervent prayer. Use fervent prayer with tenacious persistence in order to convey humility. Use fervent prayer with tenacious persistence in order to convey humility. So again, I go back to to my father, and I go back to the way that I was raised. My dad's job uh, was that of a morning man on a radio station in Dubois, Pennsylvania, WCED, AM. And what my dad would have to do is he would have to go to the radio station and at about five o'clock in the morning, every morning, he would have to sign on. Uh, back in those days, the radio station did not play all night long. It would just, it would go from early in the morning to about, uh, 11 o'clock at night, and they would play the Star Spangled Banner, and then they would be off all night. He would come, he'd have to turn the machines on, and he would be the morning man. Uh, my father was very outspoken about his faith in Jesus Christ. He would uh, sign off every day by saying, well, this is your country cousin, Charles Archibald Moore, encouraging you to faith your place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his precious blood. Now, this was secular radio, and he was telling people to put their faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. So he was very outspoken about his faith. But here's the thing that I would often remember about my father. He had to be to work at 5 o'clock 
but he would always, one hour before he had to be at work, wake up and read his Bible and pray every morning. And he would write his prayer request in his Bible, like in, in the back. And I have, I have some of those Bibles in my house. He would write them in the back of his Bible. And I would, I would sometimes like, you know, even in my teenage years, you know, I would be up all night, uh, doing what? Just doing nothing, just staying up all night because that's what you do when you're 14 years old. And I would be going up to bed. Sometimes at, uh, 10 minutes after four in the morning and my dad's light would be on and I would go back in the room and he would be in there reading his Bible and praying every morning. And I tell you 180 times a year when I would leave for school, I mean, with zero exceptions, my mother would pull me to herself and she would give me a hug and she would pray with me before I would leave the house. Again, I say this was so comforting when I was in the first and second and third grade. But when I was in junior high and my friends would be there and I would be ready to leave for school and my mother would say, you can't leave until we pray. And she would pray with me. It left, um, it left a lasting impression upon me. You see, it's, it's a pretty simple formula. And that is that humble people pray but proud people do not. Humble people pray and proud people do not. Um, do you want your children to be humble? Well, if you want them to be humble, you have to be humble. Uh, you have to pray. Uh, you have to pray with them. You have to pray for them. You have to teach them how to pray. When a crisis arises, and you'll be getting an email maybe from your church that someone had to go into the emergency room, or you'll get some sort of other word, what you need to do, listen, instead of you praying, what you need to do is you need to call a family meeting and say, we just got a report, and so-and-so broke his leg, and he's in the emergency room right now. Let's pray together. You pray when a crisis arises. You pray when someone is sick. You pray when you need wisdom. Uh, it says in James 1.5, if any lacks wisdom, let him ask God uh, in faith without wavering. Uh, I would pray with my kids before I spank them. Uh, one humorous story was one time, uh, this is back in 1999, a man from our church was going to Jamaica to be a missionary, and he said to our son, my son Parker, he said, Parker, and Parker was only eight years old at the time, he said, Parker, I want you to pray for me every day while I'm in Jamaica. His name was Wally, and, and Parker said, I promise you, Wally, I will pray for you every day. And, and Parker had done something bad, and I'll talk about this like in the next section about spanking. So I said, Parker, get the spoon, meet me in the yellow room. And, and I said, okay, uh, you know what you did wrong? Yes. Okay. Boom. I spank him. I said, all right, let's pray. Parker's got tears rolling down his face. And he's like, dear God, please forgive me for disobeying my father. And he's weeping. And he says, and please help Wally in Jamaica. <laughs> but, but it is good that, that the children know to do this. And if nothing else, you must, you must make a practice of praying with your children before they go to sleep. 
again, I go back to my father, and I think about his humility in prayer. My father was not a pastor. Uh, he would preach at different churches, and and God rest his soul, I love him. I I don't think the sermons were that good, but he was a godly man who was faithful to the Lord. And any time he would go preach somewhere and he would take me with him, I would watch my father, before he would speak, go into the men's room of of whatever church he was in, and he would get down on the floor on his knees, and he would pray out loud, and he would say, God, I beg you, please use me tonight as I preach the word. And I'm just thinking to myself, you know, I was an unsaved young man. Uh, I, I didn't know the Lord, but there was one thing I did know. I knew that my father was humble, and I knew that he was dependent upon God, and I knew that prayer was important to him. And so if the only time that you're praying is when you're having meals, I, I think you're really missing the boat there. Uh, it's not enough. The Bible says pray without ceasing. James 5.16 says that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And it's not just a matter of conveying humility, but prayer is the means that God has ordained to accomplish his purposes. I can remember in 1976 when my brother Paul, who was only 23 years old at the time, had cancer, and we didn't know if we were going to lose him. He was at the Roswell Cancer Clinic in Buffalo. It was, at the time, very serious to us, and medical advancements at that time were not what they are today. And I can just remember hearing the prayers of my mother and my father and how we as a family, primarily what we did in those days was to cry out to God Cry out to God as though you are dependent upon him because you are. Last month, I met a pastor up in New Hampshire, and he told me his story. And it was a really wild story. Uh, in fact, it's stories like you, you don't hear stories like this often. But um, his family, uh, and I think he has four or five children, they were in a really rough spot financially. Uh, they were living in... Uh, Western Pennsylvania at the time. And then after that, he went to, to Texas and now he's up in Massachusetts. But before he became a pastor, uh, they were having trouble making ends meet. And so what he was doing in order to feed his family is he would get his truck and he would drive around the neighborhood and he would look for people that put furniture out at the curbside and he would take it. He would take it home. He would refurbish it. He'd put new handles on the drawers and, and sand it down. He would put it up on Facebook Marketplace or whatever it is, uh, uh, and then he would uh, try to sell it. And and he said that there were times when the family did not have any money at all. And what he would do with the family is he would gather everybody around and say, "Okay, kids, you see this dresser right here? Your father has worked on this. It's ready to sell. See my wallet right here? It's empty." We don't have any money. The rent is due, and we are in a tough spot. Let's pray. And the children, the parents would pray. And he said it was almost comical. It was almost magical, although we do not believe in magic. But it was almost like a drama that when they would pray, God would always cause the phone to ring and the piece of furniture would sell. And he said, literally, 
our lives were. Give us this day our daily bread. Boy, we live in this world where we are so tempted to be self-sufficient. And we are encouraged in our educational system to be self, self-sufficient. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't be responsible. And I'm not saying that you should not plan and that you should not budget. But what I am saying is this. Unless we are praying, we are arrogant. The humble pray, the arrogant do not. And so let me ask you, what is your personal practice of prayer? What is your practice of prayer with your children? So, as I said, I'm not going to be able to hit all eight points. In fact, I hit just three of them. Why did I do just three of them? Uh, it is your fault, not my own. Uh, because you have been listening so attentively, I have continued to put illustrations and Bible verses which were not in my notes uh, because you seemed to be interested in what I'm saying. In the next section, just do this. If I'm making a point that you are not connecting with, start to look at your watch or pretend to doze off and I'll move on to the next point.